Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. We're going to be in verses 32 through 45 this morning. We'll begin a new series today, you know, last four-ish, five-ish weeks, uh, working through the idea of servanthood. And then after that, uh, Lord willing, we'll, you, you be in prayer for this. I don't mind sharing our journey and decision making in this area, but considering what book to go to next, as you know, our typical mode of operation or way we preach is through books of the Bible. Um, so I've been really heavily considering the book of Ruth next. So uh, just be in prayer for that as the Lord guides your elders um, on that decision. That'll probably take us through to Advent and, and then probably settle into, after the first of the year, hopefully into a book that will be in probably for the next year or more. So probably we'll settle in. I, I don't know what that'll look like, uh, but uh, we'll probably be in the next one for a long time, kind of like we were in Ephesians. Um, if you were here for most of Ephesians, we were in Ephesians for 80-something weeks. Uh, so I, I'm anxious to get back to that, um, but this has been good. This summer's been good as we've worked through Habits of Grace. Uh, now as we talk about particularly servanthood and then Lord willing going to an Old Testament book uh, for a time, I hope will be a blessing to you. So let's read Mark chapter 10, verse 32 through 45. And they, this being Jesus and the disciples, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Let me just pause for a second. Note the context, okay? That's why we just read these few verses ahead of time. Note the context, okay? Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, as we study your word this morning, Father, may it have penetrating effect in every area of our lives. Uh, you're for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. So we just finished the series we called Habits of Grace, where we discovered that you cannot, we talked about this idea a lot, you cannot force God to give you grace. Otherwise, right, you, you're, you're changing the very definition of the word grace. You cannot mingle or earn or, you know, manipulate your way to get God's grace. But God has still as we saw in the Scriptures, has promised that His grace flows more regularly in certain streams. 
And that as, the, as God has promised that His grace is present in these certain streams, we should work hard to place ourselves as close to these streams as possible. Those three primary streams being His voice, His ear, His body. Or maybe more common vernacular, His scriptures, prayer, and fellowship of the saints. So His voice, He has promised that His, his grace flows more regularly as we're engulfed in His voice, in, in His word, or His grace flows more regularly through prayer as we commune with God and through the body as we commune with each other. And then we kind of closed off the series with this idea that the way we spend the two primary resources of time and money, God's gracious gifts to us, time and money, the way we spend those directly impact how close to those streams we place ourselves. Right? Thinking about the treasure principle, where our treasure is, there our heart is. Where we spend time at, there our heart is as well. And if we don't spend time, for example, to hear His voice, then you will not hear His voice Unless he does something kind of out of, the, out of the ordinary, which God tends to do sometimes. But if we don't spend time to hear his voice, we're not going to hear his voice. Meaning, if we don't spend time in the word, we're not going to hear his voice. Towards the end, though, particularly last week, we talked about how to glorify God with our time. We talked about these, I'm just quickly overviewing, and it leads us right into the series. We live for one single passion. If we're going to glorify God with our time, we must live for one single passion, and that is the beauty of Christ, who is our joy. And we do that by boasting in nothing but the cross. Right? So we understand that all good that happens and all bad that God uses for good for His people was bought and paid for by the cross. So even in those good things, we can boast in nothing but the cross. And if you missed it last week, if you're not living, therefore, to bring others to see the glory of Christ and that they would be glad and joyful in Him and Him alone, then you're not living at all. You're wasting life. Like our walk with the Father, our joy in Christ should be bubbling over to other people. That our life should be lived, spending time, as we said last week, to help others be glad in Christ. John Piper said this, If we claim to enjoy His excellence and do not display it for others to see and admire, we deceive ourselves because the mark of God-enthralled joy is to overflow and expand by extending itself into the hearts of others. The wasted life is the life without a passion for the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all people. You see, if we enjoy His excellence, then we must be servants towards others for the purpose of them enjoying this same excellence. To enjoy this same God. You see, the mark of a God-enthralled joy is to overflow and expand by extending itself into the hearts of others. A heart that is captivated by God and joyful in the Lord will have a passion to see God supremely worshipped in all things by all people. I mean, seriously, if, if you're enthralled by the glory of God, why would you want anything else? By definition, that would mean that something else is better than God. If that's what you're giving yourself, your time, your energy, your love to. But if you believe that God is supremely good for us people, then you will want other people to taste that goodness too. You'll be so full of His excellence that you need nothing from anyone, but nothing to, I'm sorry, let me say it again. You will be so full of His excellence that you need nothing from anyone, but to give of His excellence to others. 
so captivated, so enthralled, so full from his excellencies that you in servitude to other people need nothing in return. And this is our calling. This is our identity. Once the goodness of God has been bought by Christ for our enjoyment, we are servants. Our identity is many things, but it's certainly, and what we're going to focus on for these next few weeks is a servant of Christ, a servant to others as we serve Christ. We lay down our time, we lay down our money, our rights, our preferences for the good of others, but not just any good, not just general good for others, but for the good of their walk with Christ, that they would be joyful in the Lord and in nothing else. That is the most loving thing to do. That is servanthood, that they would be glad in Christ. Servanthood, as I'm going to flesh it out over these next few weeks, is this living life so that others might enjoy God supremely living life so that others might enjoy God supremely. But here's the problem. I'm setting this up for these next few weeks here, so bear with me before we get into some more specifics of this passage. But here's the problem. We don't want to serve. Now, if you're in here and going, I want to serve, I want to serve. I, I do, and I do serve. And then... These first five characteristics are going to be really helpful for you. But here's the problem. We don't want to serve. We spend each and every day orchestrating life to benefit us. I mean, how many times do you mull over a situation thinking about how it's either going to benefit you or it's not going to benefit you or whether it's worth your time or not worth your time or worth your energy or worth your money or not worth your money or... What's going to be the projected outcome of the situation? We spend our, t- our wheels and our minds spinning and our hearts spinning towards how is this going to benefit us? Or when we are serving, here's another example, when we are serving, we get embittered because no one recognizes us or no one appreciates it. Or we don't get the right response. We go to serve and they don't respond quite the way we want them to respond. That reveals that your servitude even, your acts of service, was maybe in part for them, but it was also for you. You were going in expecting an exchange of goods. I give you this service, and I'm going to get this back from you. And when we don't get those things, we walk away embittered, or we walk away going, well, I ain't going to do that again. We walk away frustrated or angry. Or we get worn out. Or we get anxious in our servitude. We don't, we don't want to serve. Well, ultimately, deep down, our, our nature is to serve ourselves and nothing else. The biggest obstacle to serving others so that they might be glad in Jesus is our pride. I'm going to use the word pride, I'm going to use the word ego kind of interchangeably. It's our pride, it's our ego. C.S. Lewis said this, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We want something, and we want something more. We want it in more measure than the person next. We want something that makes us feel elevated in each situation that we walk into. This is why pride is the antithesis to servanthood. That's why it prohibits servanthood. Because we want to serve ourselves. Pride leads to service of self. Because it, you, something, don't think most of us understand, is the amount of effort and work it takes to keep pride afloat. Just how much orchestration, just how much language we will bend and twist and we will choose to do this or not to do this so that we can keep our, our pride inflated. 
so we can keep our ego afloat. So pride is the antithesis to serving. We want to serve ourselves so that we can have more. Or we will serve others often so that we have more servitude, right? So I have more servitude than the person I'm serving or than this person is serving over here. And if you're busy serving your ego, you cannot serve others. They don't go together. I want to give you five characteristics of pride as we see in this particular passage. Listen, pride, though, is like a snake that slithers through the grass. I just got this image. I I wrote this earlier this week and then let a snake go yesterday and watched it slither through the grass. You don't realize that that snake is there oftentimes until it bites you or somebody else. Pride is very similar. You don't realize how it's snaking through each of your conversations and the things that you're saying or not saying, the actions you're doing or actions you're not doing. And when pride rears its head up and bites somebody, then you recognize that it's there. The first characteristic of pride is that pride overestimates self. Pride overestimates self. It inflates self, if you will. Mark 10, 39. And they said to him, we are able. I mean, you and I, step back. What did Jesus just say? He talked about this baptism that he's going to go through. And they go, oh, no, no, we're able. We're good. Why do you think they feel like they should be placed in glory next to Jesus? Because they believe they can drink the same baptism that Jesus is about to drink. We're able. We're good. We got this. Put us there. Pride overestimates self. Now, now what happens to Peter when Peter is put into a place where to be, he can begin drinking this baptism? What does he do? He denies Jesus, right? Oh, but I thought you said you were able. He denies Jesus and clearly is bothered by this, depressed by this. He's upset by this. So often, even things like depression are the fruit of pride. We have, we have such a, I'm not saying in every case, but because we have such a high estimation of self, and then we have this high estimation of self or this inflated ego, and it's shown to be bankrupt as it is. But I want to be this person, and I'm not. I wrote this, if you didn't think that highly of yourself, there wouldn't be that far to fall. Pride overestimates self. Number two, pride loves being made much of. Pride loves being made much of. Mark 10, 37. And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now, I mean, a little bit of the context. They're underneath king rulership. Like the idea of sitting next to a throne is very clear imagery and desire in their minds. This is a big deal. They want to be in a place of elevated status, a place of glory, Next to Jesus. Another quote from C.S. Lewis, he says this, We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. That's why they want to be here, one sitting here and one sitting there. This place that is better than the place of others. Pride loves being made much of. I know Keller is very helpful in his little book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. If you have not read that little book, it's a great, uh, just memorize the whole thing, right? It's just good. But he talks about the ego, the ego being so bloated and distended. Like the fact that our egos get hurt 
shows that they're inflated. That we want it to be made much of. We want to be made much of. We think we deserve to be made much of. We say things like, you hurt my feelings. You, you understand, your feelings can't get hurt. Your ego gets hurt. It was your ego that got hurt because it was inflated. Because it wants to be made much of. It spends every moment of every day wanting to be made much of. It wants to sit in the place of glory. And if it had its choice, it would not sit to the left or to the right. It would sit in the center. These, this, these are things like, this is why we don't like being reminded of our sinfulness. Why we don't like working through repentance. It's why we don't want people to keep bringing up our failures. Because we want to be made much of. We want to be the glorious ones. The disciples wanted to sit at his right hand and his left. Number three, pride hides behind fairness often. It hides behind fairness. Ten. 41, and when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Why were they upset with James and John? Why were they? Because it wasn't fair. If they sit at the left and the right, where is that going to put us? Where is that going to put us? Where are we going to sit at? You have five spots on the left and five spots on the right. That's where you should put us? Why? Why would they think that? Because we deserve to be there. The desire for fairness oftentimes is rooted in a certain estimation of self. Once again, it's the ego at its core saying, I'm just as worthy as that person for this benefit. Pride can hide behind fairness. Number four, pride refuses to trust in God. Pride refuses to trust in God. Some of the rubber is going to really start hitting the road here. Verse 40. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. For whom it has been prepared. Here's what Jesus says. You're going to have to trust God. Now, we don't know, at least as you can tell from, from this text, of how do they, do they respond poorly with these things, but... Nevertheless, what we know is that Jesus is saying to them, you're going to have to trust God. So in the midst of their display of pride, he says, you're going to have to trust God. But from other passages, we know that pride cannot trust God. Pride only trusts self. The ego only trusts self. Why? Because the posture of trust is too weak. It's too dependent. It makes us look frail. It calls too much attention to the strength and wisdom of another. And that's what Jesus is saying in this moment. He's saying, no, no, no. God has this. God will decide this. God has prepared it. We can trust Him. So because we can't trust God in our pride... We have to busy ourselves with securing the things that keep our egos inflated. Everything we say or everything we don't serves often our egos. We have to arrange conversations. We have to do life in such a way to build it. Pride refuses to trust in God. Number five, pride can't serve others because it must serve itself. And again, notice where Jesus is driving to. Verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So they just talked about being elevated to these places of honor and glory because we're able to, to drink from the same cup and be baptized at the same Thing is you, Jesus, so put us one at the left, put us one at the right. All the other ten say, well, but we deserve to be there too. 
And then Jesus gives this example of, you know, the Gentiles who are considered rulers lorded over them. Huh. What's Jesus doing? I mean, it's magnificent. He's saying the things that you desire, the reason you desire them are bad. And when you desire them to be great because of your pride, you will end up doing the same thing as the Gentiles do. You will lord it over those under you. This pride, it can't serve others because it must serve itself. It lords itself over other people. It's domineering over other people. It's even abusive. It uses others to serve itself. It's manipulation. It's abuse. Listen, pride will fill up a schedule and leave no room for the service of others. Or pride serves others on its own terms for its own glory. You realize that even an act of servitude can still be an act of prideful self-service. Right? If I go into it expecting this exchange or this response for my servitude, it becomes ultimately about me. Or I can serve because uh, it makes me a better server than this person over here or these people over there. You see, you can serve in response to the gospel, or you can serve in hope of a response of payment. Some sort of payment exchange towards my pride, or I can serve as a response to God's servitude in the gospel. The last C.S. Lewis quote here, he says, If anyone would like to acquire humility... I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud, that one is prideful, that one is egotistical. Next, I want to give you six characteristics of humility. We're going to jump out of this text and kind of survey a few other texts very quickly. But I'm going to give you six characteristics of humility. Hopefully, you take those five of pride and, and begin to look for the snake in the grass. The snake slithering through your conversations. Six characteristics of humility, very quickly here. One, humility gives God the credit. Humility gives God the credit. 1 Corinthians 1, 30-31. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. No merit belongs to man or woman. For the good that we do. And a a humble person is happy about this. A humble person recognizes that God gets the credit, but is not just a mental assent to the reality that God gets the credit, but is indeed happy about it. And if man can take no credit for the saving work in his life, then he can't take credit for the good things that come from this saved life. I mean, you see how that begins to affect how we serve. If my boasting is only in the cross, therefore the good things that I'm doing in my servitude are only because of the cross then my servitude, the actions I'm doing, are in response to the cross. They're a thankfulness to the cross. They're in servitude to the cross, not even to the person that is benefiting directly to or benefiting directly from your acts of servitude. So we don't, if if that's the case, then we don't need a thank you. We don't need anyone to notice. Or, Or maybe we don't need the service to go our way. 
like for it to look a certain way, for us to feel a certain way. Listen, our service is a thank you to the Lord who saved you. Our service should be a thank you to the Lord who saved you. And listen, if your service is a thank you to the one who saved you, then you won't need a thank you from those you serve. You won't need the recognition from those you serve. Two, humility recognizes the gifts of God. First Corinthians 4, 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Wow. Hey, ego. Hey, ego. Everything you have that you're proud of, if it's legitimately something to be proud of, was a gift from God that you did not earn yourself. It would be good to wake up in the morning thinking such things. Right? In that first couple minutes of your day, hey, ego, everything that you have that is worthy of boasting is only because of the cross. And it came as a gift from God. And humility is happy to admit that everything we have is a free gift from God so that we can boast in nothing but the cross. Whatever abilities you may have, whatever ways you can serve other people, all those things are gifts from God. From getting up and making breakfast for your children to having gospel conversations with your coworkers to caring for your professor at school. Listen, pride hoards these gifts as though it's, it's owned by our egos. Humility gives them away. Why? Because it recognizes it's a good gift from a good God who has plenty more to give. Pride hoards it. Humility gives it away because it recognizes it, recognizes that it's a gift of God's. Listen, and all that you have is a gift to be shared for the purpose of leading others to be glad in Christ. Number three, humility acknowledges God's providence. Humility acknowledges God's providence. James 4, 13 through 17. <coughs> he says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. It's a whole sermon in itself in just those few verses. But humility acknowledges God's providence, His control, His governing of events in our lives. And humility is thankful that the Lord governs every aspect of our lives. Like it walks in gratitude knowing everything that's happening, the conversations, the money flow, the decisions by the professor, everything is under God's sovereign rulership and is provided by His hand. He's governing it all. Like a piper said, if we get there, God got us there. If we don't get there, God willed that we not get there. Now, clearly, you can make foolish decisions that led to not getting there. But, nevertheless, God was still sovereign even over your foolish decisions. So if we did not get there, then God willed that we not get there. Humility finds great comfort in God's providence. You, you know why sometimes we get so anxious over events? This is not everybody. But so many times we get anxious over the events of life 
because there's this tension inside of us where we realize, because we realize we can't make it happen the way we want it to happen. We can't make that grade happen that we want to get. Like we can study and study and study and study and study, but we can't make it happen. We cannot ensure that it happens, but God can. Or we get anxious over that job situation. Am I going to get the job or am I going to find this next job or whatever the case may be? We get anxious because what we, what we come to realize is that we are out of control or we don't have enough control. Or we live by this facade thinking we have enough control, and then when it shows itself to be bankrupt, then we're left distraught or depressed or melancholy. But humility finds great comfort in God's providence. Listen, you see how important this is to servitude? Think about this for a second. Servitude is not supposed to be about you. It's supposed to be for the gladness of others and the glory of God, right? It's our premise. But if you go in wanting this servitude to look a certain way or to last a certain length of time or to give you this certain kind of feeling, you're going to grow cold and bitter in your servitude. Why? Because this is what the ego does. It makes everything about you. It makes everything about me. And if you haven't figured it out already, our egos are fragile. If you walk away, give me an example, if you walk away from a conversation, from serving on Sundays, from caring for another person, and you walk away grumbling, you were just successful at making the whole event about you. But what happens, we have to understand, humility recognizes in the midst of my servitude that the way this whole thing is going down is under God's providence. And someone who is humble is thankful for that. You and I cannot make tomorrow happen the way we want it to happen. But what we can do is we can say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As I go into this event of servitude or <clears throat> impromptu servitude, it's in the car on the way home. I go into the situation, I'm driving the car, I've got the kids in the van with me or the vehicle with me and... Lord, if it's your will, we will do this or we will do that. We'll have this conversation we'll have this conversation. And this is all under your providential care. But if pride takes over, it's got to go this way. It's got to feel this way. This conversation's got to happen this way. This kid's got to respond this way. This kid can't interrupt during this, while this kid's talking. And, or these three can't interrupt while this kid is talking. And you know, it's got to look a certain way. Humility says, you know what? Even that three-year-old God's in charge of his mouth. <laughs> right? God is still sovereign over the events of what's happening in this moment. If you're humble, you can trust His providence and therefore be joyful in Him because your joy, your fulfillment's not being found in the circumstance. It's being found in the one who controls the circumstance. So humility acknowledges God's providence. Number four, humility cherishes the gospel. Humility cherishes the gospel. Colossians 3, 12-13. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Why? And how? As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Listen, our pride, our egos are fragile because it cherishes itself. It cherishes itself. It finds fulfillment in itself. instead of the gospel. It cherishes its own version of the good life instead of the good life defined by the gospel. But our willingness, listen, in this, according to this passage, our willingness to forgive others is rooted in what? 
God's forgiveness of us through Jesus. It cherishes God's forgiveness. Humility doesn't just think that's a good idea. Isn't just, ah, you know, man, if it wasn't for God's forgiveness, I would be going to that other place. Humility cherishes God's forgiveness. How do you know that it cherishes God's forgiveness? Because it then goes and does the same thing. It's forgiving. It's compassionate. It's kind. It's meek. Our willingness to forgive others is rooted in God's forgiveness of us through Jesus. But it's not, listen, it's not just copying Jesus and his willingness to die for others. It is enabled by Jesus because he died for us. It's not just go do what Jesus did. It's what Jesus did empowers and has set you free to do what Jesus has done. Number five, humility serves others. Humility serves others. Philippians 2, 3 through 8. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and, then found, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Listen. Humility seeks to give itself away in serving everyone, not seeking to be served. Humility seeks to give itself away. Again, this is polar opposite of what the ego wants. Humility gets down as... as I think it was in the, uh, the clip here too. Humility, Piper said, humility gets down low so that it can lift others up. Humility looks to the needs of others and gives time and effort to help with those needs. Again, the ego measures everything by whether it serves your good, whether it serves my agenda, my plans for the day, what I want for the next few minutes. But humility measures everything by whether it serves the good of other people. Whether it serves the good of our child, whether it serves the good of our spouse. But listen, again, if you use the, these, even these acts of servitude to manipulate someone or to hold it over their heads for future gain, then it wasn't service you actually enslaved the other person to your agenda, and that person didn't even know that they were being enslaved to it. But the question is this, am I feeding my ego, or am I feeding the gladness of others in Jesus Christ? Humility serves that purpose. To take others to the cross to take your child to the cross, to take your spouse to the cross. You say, oh, but, but i got to take care of myself. i got to take care of myself, right? I, humility serves others, but there is, there is. And, I, and listen, I want to affirm, there is a goodness of caring for ourselves. The, even in Ephesians, he talks about this idea of caring for, for your spouse as one cares for himself. There's a goodness in caring for self. But here's the question you got to ask in caring for self. Are the scriptures defining what care for myself looks like or is my ego defining what care for myself looks like? Is the ego defining my needs or are the scriptures defining my needs? It's really likely that our ego is slithering its way through our definition of what we need to be happy, to flourish, to survive even. 
So we have to be careful. Humility serves others. Number six, humility knows greatness. Here we come back to Mark 10. Humility knows greatness. This list, by the way, is borrowed from Mr. John Piper. But number six, humility knows greatness. Look at verse 43 back in chapter 10 of Mark. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. So what's it, but what shall not be so among you? This pride that lords itself over other people. This pride that abuses other people for your good. This pride that serves nothing but self. May that not be so among you. Put that off, as Paul would say in the book of Ephesians. Put it off. Put this on. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Humility is glad to affirm that to serve is true greatness. We're going to define this. But humility is glad to affirm that to serve is true greatness. You see, the way to greatness is to forsake searching for your greatness to search for His. Capital H. The way to greatness is to forsake searching for your greatness in order to search for His. That's what Jesus is saying here without saying it. Verse 43 through 45. But it shall not be so among you, for whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave, must be slave of all. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. What's he saying? Even God in the flesh, that one, that great one, that person, even he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, greatness is in serving others. Jesus' greatness is displayed as he serves others and it's supremely displayed as he gives his life. That's Jesus' point. The extent to the calling upon your servitude is that you would die to self. Very practically, you know what that means? Die to your ego. Die to your pride. And the agenda and the plans and all of the manipulation that comes from that, you die to that. You die to your greatness. Those who give up searching for greatness are set free to truly serve others. Practical examples. Give up greatness in your time. Searching for greatness with your time. Give up searching for greatness with your money or searching for greatness with your influence or searching for greatness in the way you orchestrate your preferences and make sure that they happen. We search for greatness in these things. And they say, give up those. If you give those up, you will be able to serve other people. Let me give you some examples. If you serve to get something, again, it wasn't servitude, it was duty. And you're enslaved to your ego. It was an exchange of goods. Let your ego be crucified at the cross. So we can give you some examples. You know that person in the church that you really just don't get along with? I would ask you to raise your hands if you have someone like that, but I don't want you to put anybody in an awkward position. You know that person that rubs you the wrong way? Or the one that you don't think you could you know, be in intimate relationship with. Do you realize that the call on your life is to serve that person in such a way to help them be glad in Jesus? That's the call on your life. 
The person you just don't get. The person you just don't understand. The person you just don't. You get to serve that person in such a way to help them be glad in Christ. Indeed, when it moves past your ego, because it was your ego that probably got rubbed the wrong way, you'll be able to serve that person. Another example. You know those matters of time and money? You realize that your ego drives the use of time and money for greatness. To spend your resources like time and money to serve greatness. i got to buy this, or i got to buy that, i got to go do this, i got to go do that. And then I have a little time or a little money left over to serve anybody else. Like, is the this or the that that are giving ourselves to just a pursuit of your greatness? The third example. How many of you are searching for greatness in your jobs or in your, in your schoolwork? At home? Whatever it is that you're giving yourself to. Do you go to work? Do you go to school? To serve your boss, your coworkers, your classmates, your professors? Or do you go to these places to help them be glad in Jesus? Listen, I get it. It doesn't mean you get to you preach a sermon, you know, every other hour. Hey guys, there's gonna be a standing appointment where I'm gonna preach to you. But do you go with that? I think you'll be amazed if you actually go with that heart, the opportunities God will provide for it. To help them see that Jesus is the great one. Listen, maybe you aren't looking for greatness of a promotion. Maybe for you it's greatness in people leaving you alone. Or just getting that next paycheck or avoiding stress. That's what greatness looks like to you. But if you seek that greatness, you will have no room left to serve other people. So here's the question, right? I, I hope some of you, I hope all of you, are like in the pit of despair, right? And I hope at this point you're going, oh my goodness, that's what is required of me. Wow. I don't know. How does one simply give up the search for one's own greatness? By pursuing and beholding the greatness of God. By pursuing and beholding the greatness of God. Something has to displace that greatness. Something has to take its place. Because it, like a vacuum, will suck something else into its place. Something has to plug the hole. Listen, when you realize how small you are and how great God is, when you realize how proud you are of yourself, that you would walk in repentance and faith, God will begin to be bigger in your eyes, more great in your eyes. His servitude through the gospel will become more glorious to behold. His greatness will take hold of your ego and decimate it over time. One degree of glory to the next. Verse 45 again, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the only great one. Why do we keep searching to be the great one? Because we don't believe Jesus is the great one. And someone's got someone's to hold that position, right? Like in each of our eyes, someone's got to be in that great spot. Why not me? Jesus fills that spot. Jesus is the only great one. He's the perfect Son of God, the radiant light in the midst of darkness, the exact imprint of the Father. He is man in perfection and God incarnate. If there were ever greatness that our eyes could behold, it is Him. And if there were ever greatness that man could touch, it was Him. This great one laid his life down for your miserable, wretched, egotistical, self-promoting, and self-serving heart. He died for you. He came to serve you. To be a ransom for you. 
He paid for every ounce of good that is in your life, and he paid for every bad thing that is being used by God for your good. He paid for the sins that separate you from God, even the ego that drives your sins today. He paid for it. And we're called to faith in his saving work and repentance of our sin against that great God. You see, Jesus, again, is the only great one. And yet, and yet, he's the, he's the only great one, and yet he didn't just give up some preferences for us. Do you understand that? He didn't just give up a little bit of time to come help us. He gave up his life in heaven for a period for us. He gave up the comfort of home for us. He gave up, listen to me, the unending love of the Father for a moment in time for us. And the Father still loved him, but this experience of brokenness between him and the Father, Jesus gave for us. If you're glad in Jesus because you see how he has served you, you will gladly serve others. Listen, when you know the greatness of his life laid down for yours, you will lay your life down for others. When you know the treasury of heaven that was given to buy you back, you will lay your money down for others. When you begin to understand the painful time in those moments when the Father turned His face away from the Son, when you see the time He sacrificed for you and me, you will gladly give your time for the good of others. You see, when you are enthralled with the greatness of God, you can give up searching for your greatness because you realize it couldn't even compare to the greatness of God. This will captivate your heart. This will humble you low enough so that you can lift others up in service. You can serve them to be glad in Christ. You can serve their faith. You realize that discipleship, discipleship is nothing more than saying, come watch me die. Come watch me die to self and live to Christ. Certainly watch my body waste away, but come watch me die to myself. Watch me die to my ego and come alive in Christ. You realize that at the root of the gospel is this thought. The gospel says, come die so that others might live. Jesus says, I come to serve you by dying so that you can live through me. Servitude says, come die so that others might live. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the great service of the gospel on our behalf. Father, we did not deserve it. We did not earn it. And we do many things on this side of it that dishonor it. But Father, you still gave in compassion, even though we were enemies, even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins. You came for us. Father, please rid us of the pride and the ego that drives our every move and thought and decision and exchange it for humility. Father, give us the eyes to behold, the hearts to behold your greatness. 
particularly as it's displayed through the servitude of your son Jesus as he dies on the cross to serve, care for, rescue, redeem, reconcile those who did not deserve it. May we behold your greatness in that. And then from your great service unto our wretched hearts, may we go serve others in the name of Jesus. May we lead others to be glad in Christ as an overflow of our gladness in this same Christ. Father, thank you. But may it be so in your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.